2: welcome in to another edition of basketball by association my name is Archie jay joined as always by my good friend my good pal and uh, my commander at the helm of this ship it is mr joel cordes managing everything in the world known as dot riders.com
1: joel what's up brother Well, I'll remember my name a little quicker than you uh, remembered yours there, but you also, I guess, gave me the clue of naming me beforehand. It's episode 10, everybody. Let's do this.
2: (laughs) Hold on. I can remember most of my name. Relax, brother. Jeez. (laughs) Someone has such little faith in my memory skills. How about this one then, Joel? Uh, Joining us, ladies and gentlemen, may we put our hands together left and right, even our feet if we want to, for Mr. Bob. Bayjack. Bob, what's up, brother? How are you guys doing? I'm glad to be here. I, I, I'm i glad to have you here, Bob. I really am. And I think you know why on the down low on our discussions before. You know that. Um, So um, I wanted to first tell everyone to uh, thank you. Thank them for downloading uh, this year podcast and tell them right at the very top that they can right now get B-Ball writers for 35% off by using the code BBA, the number one, at checkout. Gets you 35% off a monthly or annual at any time. So the next time you go to bballwriters.com, go ahead and sign up. It keeps the lights on for everybody and it's super great content that we've been bringing to you the last couple of months, uh, just telling you about it on the podcast. bballwriters.com. And then when you go check out for your monthly or annual subscription, use the code BBA1. Why pay more when you don't have to, you know what I mean, Joel?
1: Absolutely. And then we get to talk about basketball all week long, including top centers of the nineties today and talk about an exciting topic. I guess for me personally, I don't know how you feel about centers. Arky, I know you, we, we've done point guards already for a while. Um, but that that was the nineties for me. And we're going to get into a couple of players that I really enjoyed. This is coming out of Bob's article of uh some of his favorite centers of the 90s in this series that we've been doing called the NBA. I grew up watching. and I think we're at like part 13 or 14 now. It's just a fantastic series at bballwriters.com, TBW for short, if you want. Um, So yeah, we're going to dig into Shaq and Alonzo Mourning and Dikembe Mutombo and my favorite, David Robinson. We're going to get to some fun names here today.
2: Bob, let's start this bad boy off with uh, your piece. Uh, it's your favorite centers of the 1990s. Uh, it's a great, great, great time for basketball to be watching, and especially for centers. Uh, maybe the last true decade where they got to be so dominant, and it may be the last one for who knows how long or ever. So how did you stumble upon your favorite centers and how did you narrow it down? Because there were so many guys that I think a lot of people forget that were just really good big men for even maybe short periods of time, but it was a great decade for centers. You're definitely right. Arky. I mean, I just, I got the idea because
3: uh, Dan O'Brien had an excellent piece on the little guys. And, you know, I just love the NBA so much. All, all different types of shapes and sizes, but I'm like, what about the centers they need some love i mean if you look today, some people say the the center is dead, and maybe maybe they're talking about their traditional um you know backing up center in in the post but um you know a lot of them kind of transcended skills right now, and I'm not sure we'll talk about that later, but um i I agree with you, archie that it was very very difficult to narrow it down. I just love so many players, and you know I gave some shout outs to to um a lot of the morning. Patrick Ewing and, um, Hakeem, the dream, Wan, but, um, yeah, I mean, people like Shaq, like who, who doesn't like Shaq? Well, maybe, maybe me, Kobe for me, a few years, me, but I mean, Shaq me, I, is just my
1: hand. <laughs> I, I'm actually, I never was a Shaq fan. We'll get to that in a little bit. I don't want to steal your thunder, but when you ask who, this guy right over here, keep going.
3: <laughs> well, Joe, I guess we have to agree to disagree, but I look forward to that conversation there. <laughs> um, but you know, Shaq, you know, I, you guys got to realize, I think you guys have a few years on me, you know, I started watching the NBA at seven years old and it was just amazing seeing these really huge, big dudes who were like superheroes and, you know, they can just get what they wanted. And, um, you know, Shaq had a great duo with uh, Penny Hardaway, who was another cool nineties player. And I mean, Shaq would just straight up bully guys on the floor and he could get anything he wanted. It could be dunks, layups, oops, hook shots, rebounds, blocks. I mean, you name it. he, He he just dominated the game, and I mean, I know people could compare LeBron James dominating it physically, and he does, but I don't know if we've seen anybody like Shaq do it.
1: Arky, before I get into why I was never a Shaq fan, your feelings on the Big Diesel, the Big Cactus, the Big Socrates, and all the other names that Shaq gave himself?
2: The only thing I actually hated about Shaquille O'Neal was the fact that uh, he – had maybe two hundred and fifty thousand nicknames. Um, like he, like it felt like every two days was a new nickname. Uh, I'm the big caterpillar. It's like, I don't know what any of this means, uh, but you're the new uh, next uh, big something. Uh, also, um, and I hate to do it this um, this early on in the show, but the only thing I think of when I think of Shaq is him dunking on Chris Dudley. Um, from my Knicks uh, and uh, being all about that business, like all up in Chris Dudley's business uh, afterwards. Uh, Oh, actually during, I should say, not afterwards, during the,
1: (laughs) before, during, after, probably still today. Yeah.
2: But I love Shaq. And you shouldn't be so
3: surprised about that, Arky. I mean, a lot of people dunk on the Knicks all the time.
1: Oh, come on, Bob. (laughs) I didn't put him up for that. I swear. Uh, Jeez,
2: Bob. All right. mean. I heard right to the core, but you know what? James Nolan's going to sell the team. Anyway, (laughs) but I think the, I love Shaq because there was truly no other player like him in the NBA at the time. Like, not just personality wise, but like, he was such a physically dominating presence. Listen, you could say all you want about Tim Duncan and the the Admiral um, David Robinson. None of them were the bodies and the physical dominance and just and i mean physical like you he just moved you around with that giant butt uh that it was just insane for that for that period of time when he got to the lakers especially when he basically turned into like a big old boy that just couldn't be stopped by anybody it was a tour de force it was a force of nature to watch that guy play basketball so i can never Hate him for being the basketball player. I could though for uh, putting all his business up in Chris Dudley's business.
1: And and Kazam, let's not forget about that. He gave us the great line, "I am Kazam." Come on. All right, here's here's my my hot take on Shaq. I know I'm not the only one out there, but I'm definitely in the minority. Let me first start with the caveat that I recognize Shaq and respect Shaq as, like Bob said, probably the the most physically dominant player uh maybe outside of wilt chamberlain ever for his era maybe even more dominant than wilt was at his peak i don't know i'm not old enough to have seen wilt play but shaq is right up there as as either one or one b in that conversation so i respect that had shaq stayed with the orlando magic and penny hardaway i probably would have a much different feeling about shaq had he soldiered on and brought that championship to orlando But when Shaq defected, and I I know I've seen the the Shaq and Penny um, 30 for 30. It's fantastic, this magic moment. If you've never seen it, go watch it. It helps explain a lot. I I don't think it exonerates Shaq, but it certainly gives the context that we're often missing in those moments. But when he defected to join the Los Angeles Lakers of all teams, um, and then that pairing with Kobe, it really was like the two biggest bullies not just proverbially, but like literally in the NBA at that time, joining forces to go beat up everybody else in the schoolyard. There was no way, especially with my own massive inferiority complex, that I was ever going to be able to root for the overdogs like that um, as they beat up everybody. And and we talk about Shaq's dominance and ability to get anything he wanted in the paint. And that is absolutely true, especially for those prime years in Orlando and in L.A., although L.A. had started to get a little less every season because he kept coming into each year a little more and more out of shape, and he'd have to play his way into shape by the time the playoffs rolled around. Um, but it was there, and for a while, it just it wasn't fun to watch, at least for me. Um, and I know that he got hacked. I know that he should have been put at the free throw line probably thousands more times than he actually was. With the beating that he took in the paint but there was also the beating he dished out that he typically got away with um because of that size because of that strength and i think it just was again that Shaq and kobe that dynamic that unless you were a lakers fan you were like all right it's pretty much a given that these two guys are going to win but how much fun is this and oh when they're not going to win when the portland trailblazers have them on the ropes in game seven or the king's have them on the ropes in a game seven. It sure seems like the NBA is going to give them the call, you know. And I again, I don't know whether those games were rigged. I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist. We know this, but as a as a team watching those games, it was just that foregone conclusion that the bullies were going to win, and I could never bring myself to root for that. And maybe that's not a, a fair comparison for Shaq, but that's always where I've landed on him. And later in his career, Bob, when he was moving around the the league with the different teams. It, he was one of those guys that he was still that larger than life personality, but his game couldn't always back up all the nicknames and everything else that he was kind of demanding at those points. And later career Shaq just kind of got annoying and sad to me.
3: Well, I think, you know, with Shaq, I agree with you, Joel. I mean, when you, when you're that big, um, you, you take a lot of toll, especially how they used to play in the NBA with uh, power boards right. and centers in the post, you just take a beating and a beating. And, I do think, you know, he started to physically slow down. But the amazing thing, like even when he was with the seven seconds for less suns, and he could actually still run with those guys, um, you know, just being that big and averaging over 10 points a game, even when he's put 37, 38 years old, um, it just Absolutely. It's a testament to his talent.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll never question the talent. I'm just one of those few that at that time wasn't a Shaq fan. But let's talk about a different guy who is on your list. And we won't take my guy yet you had uh, number two on the article who I think we all can respect even if we weren't like you know massive fans particularly
3: yeah the second guy I had was uh Dikembe Mutombo and you know besides having a very fun name just being 7'2 245 pounds of quick twitch athleticism was just amazing like um some of the videos I showed he can block and and, and block again on his second jump which is I think you know very rare to do and Um, you know that was that came at a premium in the 90s and early 2000s when you had hand checking and people crowding and camping in the paint Um, you know it was hard to get points Uh, kind of right now the NBA is kind of like a track Back well back like in the 80s but back in that time era it was everything was a slodge. if you watch even those last dance um, videos that everybody's watching right now the games were even like 80 70 points in the playoffs and so having somebody like Dikembe who had almost 3,300 blocks in his career and having that, giving people the business with his finger wag, I mean, you, you need somebody like that. He, he was somebody who, even though he wasn't a great offensive player per, you know, points per game, he was somebody like a Dennis Rodman who showed you that defense can,
2: you know, flip the game.
1: And Dike- it- Go ahead, Arky.
2: Joel, I was going to ask you about this uh, when we bring up Dikembe and bring up the defense part. It's like, how much do you think, and I know Dikembe Dikembe was a lot of fun, uh, but how much do you think someone like Dikembe, when we talk about all-time great centers, gets hurt in the fact that his offensive game wasn't nearly as explosive and well-rounded as some of these other centers that we're talking about?
1: Yeah, I think as a cultural icon and certainly as an after-basketball icon, Dikembe lives on. but on the game side of things, he does kind of fall into those one-way icons. You know, Dennis Rodman, we remember, not only for the rebounding, but also all the off-court stuff and the hair color and and things like that. But if you would take all that personality stuff away from Dennis Rodman, he'd be remembered as one of the all-time greats at a particular skill. And that's not entirely fair for Matumbo because as good of a shot blocker as he was, he was nearly as good of a rebounder. If you look at those numbers year after year, not only is he a double-figure rebounder, but he's almost always near the top, especially in defensive rebounds. So it's a guy, yeah, that's going to protect the rim. And that was a, at a premium, like like Bob said. Um, but he would get his, his share of steals. He would be able to shut people down. He was getting a ton of defensive rebounds and he could finish a play. You were not going to run an offense through Dekemi Mutombo. And that's one of the reasons why Despite all that dominance that the Denver Nuggets moved on from him in the late eighties, even though he had helped them in that, you know, iconic upset of the supersonics in the first round where the Nuggets were the first ever eight seed to win a series, and, and that moment of Dikembe, you know, grasping the basketball, just overjoyed on the floor, that's gonna live in the NBA forever. But even the Nuggets, even with a guy that good who had done that much, moved on from him into a full rebuild and sent him to the Atlanta Hawks. And I think honestly, Mutumbo was at his best on those Atlanta Hawks teams, which were very good. They were kind of also Ram teams because the Bulls were so dominant, but he was there in an ensemble cast. They had Steve Smith as their leading scorer. Christian Leitner was their number two scorer. They had Mookie Blaylock and Ty Corbin as really solid defenders and decent two-way players. And Mutumbo could be the anchor of a unit like that. Those teams were really good with Lenny Wilkins coaching. They just never really had the bench to compete. Um, but that was kind of the ideal for Mutombo, and he was very effective when he went on to the Sixers, too, and Allen Iverson That's the latter career in Mutombo. But, so, yeah, it's a guy that you wanted on your team and you could build your defense around. You just weren't going to build, like, your whole roster around him.
3: Do you guys think that Dikembe Mutombo would, would have been better in today's NBA just with him being a role man and a dunker with um, all the pick and roll they do?
1: I think he definitely could have filled like the Tyson Chandler, DeAndre Jordan, uh, Jared Allen type of role. There's a role for those guys still, even though they may not have the outside shot. We really never got to see Mutombo shoot from outside. I don't know whether he had that capability or that could have been, you know, trained in over time if he was working on that as a, as a kid in the modern era. But certainly, even if he never developed a jump shot, you know, Andre Drummond is another one. There's a role for those guys on certain teams. You just really got to make sure you have a stretch four, a stretch three, and probably a stretch two next to them out on the floor to keep that spacing for your pick and roll.
3: And besides the spacing, I think you have to have a dynamic passer to make that work.
1: Yeah, no, I would agree. Oh,
2: well, Bob, let's keep the uh, let's keep the love train going from the '90s. Uh, let's talk about the Admiral himself. He was alluded to before uh, in this uh, your uh, we're on your article uh, right now on bballriders.com. Uh, you talked about the admiral himself too.
3: Yeah, you know, um, everybody loves the Spurs, especially a lot of the um, B-ball writers, and I just feel like sometimes the conversation everybody talks about Tim and Timmy was a great player, but you know, the admiral, I mean, that's where that's where it was at, you know, for many many years, and his career numbers are actually very comparable to Tim Duncan. Um, I believe Duncan has about twenty nine more winchers in a career, but Robinson played less, um, 405 less games than him, so um, he, he was gathering it at a higher rate, and even um, the per was two points higher than Tim, so it kind of shows you how great the admiral was. Um, I think it's just because he had two titles opposed to the five that Tim Duncan had that maybe people um, remember him. Some of it too might be recency bias since he um, finished playing in 2016 instead of 2003.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that depends on the age of the Spurs fan you're talking to, right? If you started watching the Spurs during the Tim Duncan era, then of course you kind of forget on Robinson. Or if you just came in at the beginning in, in 99 and you see Robinson in decline, you knew he was a good player, even an all-star. You just didn't really know how good he was. I think really longtime Spurs fans understand that, that synergy between the two of them and the passing on of eras. Um, and how good Robinson was—he just didn't have that type of supporting cast around him um, before that. One of the—and I've—I've shared my love of Dave Robinson on this show before. Um, he was and still is my favorite player ever. He's one of the huge reasons why I became an NBA fan. I have no idea, really, why I liked him so much. I just know that in watching him, I did, and it grew really fast. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I've always had a soft spot in my heart for centers. And we'll talk about some of the other guys in a minute too, but. Um, one of the really fun things I've always liked about the 90s center era is just the huge difference among those center stars. Like you had Shaq with the power, you know, and yeah, he could run up and down the floor, but it was all that locomotive freight train, the big diesel game. You had uh, Hakeem Olajuwon with just sheer agility and that almost, uh, you know, that ballet-like ability to move around the basket, and yet still one of the best defenders of all time. The canby we talked about, it's the finger wag, it's the vertical defense, you're not going to get at the rim. Patrick Ewing was a phenomenal, you know, mid-range shooter, good athlete, could do a lot of different things, but it was, it was going for that fadeaway jump shot almost every time. For me, David Robinson is the best athlete out of all of them. And again, depending on how we want to define that, we can talk about Shaq too. But David Robinson was the guy that could just run and jump and finish every play. He had a jump shot. He could pass. He could defend. He was thoroughly a complete player and was just one of those guys that, like, he stood out in almost everything that he did. And that's that's always, even going back to film, is what strikes me with him. There was a weakness in almost all of those other centers' games somewhere. And David Robinson, I can't really find the the weakness. And he could do everything.
2: Do you think, Joel, that – that had David Robinson, listen, all things being equal, uh, if, if that Spurs team and he was playing that level right now, and the way, especially with the advent of the social media, we'd be looking at him in a similar way and, and praising him like we praise like a Kawhi Leonard, one of these quiet guys who's just dominant at their position and just gets things done. But it, we we all recognize that everyone wants the flashy, maybe, maybe um Hakeem over here, maybe, uh, I guess I'm adding all kinds of eras in, or maybe LeBron if we're playing this era. Everyone wants to talk about those offensive players, but David Robinson's really the real best player in the league.
1: I think there was, you know, a season or two where that could have been said about Robinson, but we all know that he did. He had his playoff struggles with those Spurs teams. That comes back to bite the legacy a little bit. There's the the very popular video of, like, Hakeem taking him to school in one of their um, playoff series in the mid nineties. And that, that was a big deal that did happen, but you look at that supporting cast, um, that he had in San Antonio and you're talking about guys like Avery Johnson and Vinny Del Negro and Sean Elliott, who were solid starters, but could any of them really be your second star? They tried Dennis Rodman there for two years. That didn't really work. The bench was always kind of a work in progress. So yeah, if he was playing today, um, and winning today, I think we would look at him in that same realm as a uh, Kawhi Leonard. Um, but there's a lot of things. There's a lot of variables in his career legacy. Where, you know, you go back to the guys that really stand out from that era. It's going to be MJ for the sheer greatness, but also and Shaq for the dominance. But Shaq for the sheer loudness. I mean, he put himself on the map. He was everywhere. MJ was on TV everywhere. Charles Barkley probably gets remembered more than Carl Malone does. And part of that is market, but part of that is just, you know, Barkley's ability to sell himself and be affable to the media and be engaging with them. And some of the players, when small market really was a hindrance that played in places like uh, San Antonio and Utah, they don't always get their due now that 20, 30 years are passing because that stuff really did matter. Reggie Miller played in Indiana, but he's always connected to the Knicks and that large market. And there's that infamy, I think, that helped him even though he was in a small market. So totally different conversation for a different time. But yeah, I, I think we would respect Robinson more today um, in the social media era when we're getting those highlights fed to our phone immediately.
2: So Bob, I think one of the most interesting things about this piece and thinking back about the 90s and, and centers is that if you think about Hakeem Olajuwon and Shaq and David Robinson, who we just brought up, that if you think about the same, these are the these are guys playing at the same time when Michael Jordan is at his absolute peak, like he is he is winning MVPs and Defensive Players of the Years. But Akeem Olajuwon did that too, and I think the same year that he became the second or third guy ever to do that, David Robinson averaged nearly thirty points a game, like in the same year. And then there's guys that we're not talking about. Bobby brought him up a moment a, a little earlier about Alonzo Mourning, my guy Patrick Ewing. Uh, who uh, the the, uh, the NBA was right to rig uh, the lottery for? Uh, Dikembe sure. Mutombo, uh Vlade Divac is in that era. Um, Rick Smith is in that yeah. era. Like yeah. there are a one. lot of just great.
3: Sabonis is another one too.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're all and they're all playing at the same time. Like I don't know if we'll ever get that many like big. Great! The Hall of Famers just at the top of that list. Like it's just it's silly to think about how great these players were.
3: I mean, it and it's just amazing, especially just being that tall. And you just have to have great coordination. When when I was doing college basketball, I'm um, covering it for my school paper. Um, our team had some taller guys. We were only in OBC uh, Ohio Valley Conference, and I think we had guys six seven, six eight. And, you know, even they had a hard time just um, doing well with coordination and, um, you know, switching and recovering to the perimeter. They just had a hard time with that. So it's just amazing if you're 6'10", foot. some of these guys 7'2", to be able to just have that coordination to move well and, you know, set screens and dribble and pass is just amazing to me. And I think I, I gained a new respect when I started just covering high school and college basketball.
2: Jill, can I ask you, uh, do you think um, there, there's this narrative that's going around that like the the centers, like this kind of era can like not happen again. The centers are like, they're dead in the NBA, but with the floor spacing and the way the big guys have to be able to shoot and make threes. Do you think that's true?
1: No, I think that's hugely overblown. Because um, think back to the era and the names you just mentioned, that's, like 10 names that we got to, maybe 12. Um, many of those are Hall of Famers, but a couple of the guys like like Divas and Rick Smith are probably not going to be in the Hall of Fame, but they were very, very solid starting caliber centers. Uh, but for all of those guys, then you had others like, I mean, for every David Robinson, you have a Felton Spencer. For every Hakeem Olajuwon, you have an Eric Riley or a John Koncak or a Danny Shays or you know, a Jim McIlvain, these guys who are not very good centers by comparison. And so when we look around today, there's kind of like this over-expectation that, oh my gosh, if every team doesn't have a Hall of Fame center on its roster, that means it's dying as a position. No, it's not. Because you still, at any one time during that peak era, had like 10 guys who were like all-star caliber centers. And you look around today, you still have Joel Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns and Nikola Jokic and Andre Drummond. You still have guys in that second tier, uh, you know, and Rudy Gobert, I should be putting up in the first tier, but other really good centers, um, you know, Mark Gasol has faded now at this point in his career, but Hassan Whiteside's really good. Al Horford um, was dominant at that position. Steven Adams was a great second tier center. Derek Favors is a solid guy. Like again, how many of those guys are Hall of Famers? Probably only the first ones that I mentioned. Um, maybe Al Horford gets in there with longevity, but I kind of doubt he does. Um, but I don't think the percentage is that far off from what it used to be. I think it more alludes to what um, Bob opened with at the top of the show, is that it's a, different in, a difference in how they play. Almost every single one of the centers that I mentioned now, with the exception of Drummond and Gobert, have some range on their jumper. They can run the the points from the top of the key in the half court a little bit. Um, you can run pick and roll with them. You can face them up. They will play back to the basket sometimes. It's not that they can't. It's that offenses have realized a back to the basket play yields points at a much lower percentage than face up and moving downhill with motion. And that's, I think, really what the difference is. Bob, would you agree with that? I
3: would I would totally agree with that. And I think some of it, guys, how, how it's skewed is that um, a lot of people don't play traditional center anymore. Like Draymond Green and is, is great, but he's a small ball center. Like he does what centers do, but he's not a traditional center. Or you have um, P.J. Tucker, another example. So some, some smaller guys, because the small ball lineups are coming in, so it kind of displaces some seven-footers. If you can't dribble, if you can't pass, if you can't at least have some range where people can respect you, even if it's a jumper – Um, and I think it kind of changes it too, guys, that, um, you know, Hall of Fame talents like, um, Anthony Davis, um, he's not, um, you know, he plays more of a power forward or Giannis is kind of a small forward, even though, you know, I think he does small in power and Kristaps Przingis, I think more than half the time he's playing power forward. So some of these guys in the past, you would peg him as a center and they're just playing different positions now.
1: And a lot of a lot of that comes into the fact that if you were going to camp your center out or camp your center down low and run the offense through them out of the post, your guys are really all standing around waiting for that kick out. Like you said, you go back and watch the old footage. It's a lot of standing and waiting or one guy cutting at a time. And today, if the goal is to get your point guard downhill and going to the basket, you can't have a center, much less a center and a power forward standing directly near the basket or they're bringing their defender with them you got to put them out in the dunker spot you got to put them down to the baseline or better yet you got to camp them out at the top of the key run and pick and pop Um, so there are certain teams that can still operate with centers who do not shoot Um, but a bigger part of it even than the offense at this point is if you're a center you have to be able to survive out and pick and roll way out on the wings and the top of the key and if you can't move laterally enough To do that effectively, you don't play. There's a reason why a guy like an Al Jefferson, you know, or even Roy Hibbert for as great of a shot blocker as he was, once the game really started speeding up and they can't guard out on the perimeter, that's the end for them. And a guy like Rudy Gobert Andre Drummond are so good that they can survive enough to do that and be a really good post defender.
2: Yeah, I think it's super interesting when you uh when people watch the Jordan docu-series in the first two episodes that when Jordan was being drafted the big uh one of the big concerns was could a guy like that size be the focal point of a team and you're and they're talking to current centers at the time saying I don't know, I don't know. Back in like the mid-80s that there was this whole old traditional talk of it. I am going to ask each of you in a yes or no and then we'll that I want to ask uh, Bob about how we got into covering the of uh, the association. Uh, I'll start with Joe. Joe, yes or no, do you think in the next let's just say 15 20 years, do you think we see any kind of progression back to the type of center we're talking about from the nineties? No. By you, Bob?
3: Um, I believe yes, but as an effective bench player.
2: Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. Uh Bob, let's uh let's let's ask you a little bit about what got you into the into basketball into covering it. So what's what's your background like, man?
3: Well, I come from a newspaper and online journalism background. Um I started in college and did a lot of sports reporting, but I also dabbled in news and opinion writing. Um, I, I was at Eastern Illinois University, and, and the OBC had some prospects that actually went to the league that I saw play, like Robert Covington, Isaiah Cannon, Kenneth Fareed. Um, and, Ar- Arky, you're going to like this one, that uh, the interim coach for the New York Knicks, Mike Miller, he was the Eastern coach at the time. And, boy, was I a thorn in that guy's <laughs> side. And I'm kind of surprised, you know, he eventually became an NBA coach, but I guess when he, he left that job he got into the, the G League and I think he grew a lot as a coach. So we were we probably met at different times, you know, in, in his timeline as a coach.
2: Um, wait, 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 wait. Involved how, with... how why were you such a thorn in his side? What happened? What did he not like about you?
3: Um, well, because I would point out that, you know, he gets contract extensions and his team loses two out of three games in his tenure, so I just argued that the administration didn't care about winning.
2: <laughs> all right. Well, I could understand that then if I was <laughs>
3: <laughs> he in all honesty, he w- he was a good guy. He was one of those tough those tough um Texas coaches and um I'm glad he's having some success in the NBA. Um I guess following that, you know, I did a lot of freelancing for high school sports, um um particularly football, but I did a lot of t- um high school basketball too. And um, I I worked at Bleacher Report for a while. I had two internships writing about the Bulls and the NBA, um, also a lot of college football, um, NFL. Um, And that's kind of how I met Joel. Joel was actually my assignment editor for for a while. Um, They entrusted me to cover the 2012 McDonald's All-American Game and Dunk Contest. So um, I went to the United Center in Chicago and interviewed... um, Future NBAers and TJ Warren, Shabazz Muhammad, um, Archie good, um, Goodwin, and um, Anthony Bennett, the one who was um, the number one pick, but he kind of busted out of the league. So it was very good experience, um, just interviewing people about their goals. Um, a lot of these guys um, didn't pick a team yet, so I was just kind of doing some scouting. Um, I mean, recruiting um, articles and. Um, you know, I kind of got away from uh, doing sports for a while with different career things, doing um, corporate communications and investigative journalism. And um, I just reached out to Joel and I was like, you know, I miss covering sports and I would just want to get back again. And I've just been doing some articles for um, uh, B-ball writers and enjoying the, enjoying the ride.
2: You know, Joel, I I think it's interesting uh, that uh, we're listening to Bob talk about covering Anthony Bennett. That guy uh, was, um, one of the maybe quickest out of the league dudes as a number one pick is for a guy who actually played a bunch of I think in his first two seasons that I can re- really remember. That was uh
1: that was Absolutely. Not- that that's like an entirely different show for a different time. We could do an entire Anthony Bennett slash number one bus episode. So Joe- log that in the log that in the idea book.
3: <laughs> Joe- well, it was, it's kind of sad too, because you know, he was a good guy who um had goals and I think he was a tweener before they really knew what to do with tweeners, but I think people were more enticed with potential than his skill set. Um, so that, that's kind of what happened to him. So I'm, I'm kind of sorry that uh, he, he didn't
2: work out. Oh, it's that whole high ceiling talk, right? Uh, he's got a high ceiling. Let's see what he can do with it. Uh, they didn't know what to do with it at the time. Um Joel, uh, let's talk a little bit for a a moment about Basketball Intelligence, uh, where right now people can still – I think people can still subscribe to that for free, but it's not going to be that much longer.
1: Basketballintelligence.net is uh, one of the affiliate sites with us at bballwriters.com, at uh, TBW for shorthand. Um, Basketballintelligence.net is the gold standard for NBA newsletters. Everybody from coaches to GMs, scouts, players, you name it, media – By the Droves are all subscribers to that, as well as thousands and thousands of NBA fans in the know. Um, You're going to get the best NBA articles from around the Webosphere every single day in your inbox. It's hand curated. It's not some algorithm. Um, You're going to get just the best basketball-centric stuff. No clickbait, no soap operas, um, just the good stuff. And yes, it is free for right now. Go over to basketballintelligence.net. Sign up while you still can.
2: And help support guys like Joel and myself and especially Bob, uh, who decided to talk about my Knicks getting dunked on all the time, um, still want people to support him as well, despite that. Uh, If you go to bballwriters.com and you'll see his article, if you want to get access to that and all the other content uh, that they have right now on bballwriters.com, Go sign up for, I would say, an annual. I mean, it would be well worth your money. Uh, and then enter in the promo code BBA1 at checkout, and that's 35% off. Whether you do a monthly or an annual, annual is going to save you some money. Uh, and do- that,
1: that that directly helps to support this show, everybody. This is one of the ways we can keep it uh, you know ad-free is those subscriptions help support what Arky's doing, um, what I'm doing, what Bob's doing. So, yeah, please, please subscribe.
2: Yeah, the promo code BBA1 35% off that ain't too bad. Bob, man, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Um thank you for the uh, the article. It was, a, the, it was a nice fun read. It's it's good to go look back at that the 90s, that's my heyday, man. That's when I really got pumped into into the old hooparoos and that is uh that, that was awesome. Thanks for bringing me back to that.
3: Oh, I'm glad I can do it. And you know, I'm going to be watching the last dance and watch the Bulls dominate the Knicks again.
2: <laughs> All right. Hang up your mic. Hang up your mic. We're good.
1: Speaking <laughs> the- of the last dance, though, Arky, I have a feeling that's uh, that's probably what we're going to be talking about next week on episode 11 of Basketball by Association.
2: Man, the, the thing every time I sort of think about the Bulls is how many championships could have had Happened for other teams like my Knicks or the Jazz, and it just mm-hmm. it ran into a, a buzzsaw and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman and uh, uh, I guess Oakley early on. I, like it just it, Horace Grant. I mean, just Ku coach.
1: Like it, yeah. I, I still I still maintain though, to the day I die, that had Jordan not retired, and they would have faced the Rockets twice instead of the Knicks or the Magic, that the Rockets would have taken a championship from them. That, again, is a different topic for a different time. But I think that Houston Rockets team, with the way they were built and Hakeem at the height of his powers, Rodman wasn't going to stop him. Luke Longley wasn't going to stop him. They would have taken at least one out of two from those Chicago Bulls, as great as the Bulls were. But, again, Mm -hmm. we can can do that a different day.
2: Mm -hmm. just my, the only chance I thought the Knicks, while well, I'm alive, are ever going to get a title was uh, thwarted by the Bulls many times in the East. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for the conversation. This is good times. com. Get there right now. Guys, have a good one. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time.
0: See you next week, everybody. Take care, guys.